Hello and welcome back. There will be spoilers, 100 films, 100 podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we are back with 1982's E.T. the Extraterrestrial. E.T. the Extraterrestrial. That's number 24 on our list. And now we are into the final quarter. We are the final quarter. Ethan, I'm assuming you've seen this film before. I Yes, I sure have. I know I have as well. Certainly been a long time, and we'll get into it a little bit more further in the episode, but some things happened that, you know, if you asked me prior to watching the film a second time, I would have said, nope, that definitely doesn't happen in that movie. (laughs) So other people might have the same issue as me, so why don't we give them a plot synopsis? Yes, let's do it. So, uh, E.T. is the story of Elliot, a young boy who befriends an extraterrestrial being. The alien, that they call E.T., has been accidentally left behind by his team of aliens on a visit to Earth. After Elliot meets E.T. near his home, he lures him inside using the delicious Reese's Pieces. The two immediately share a special bond. Elliot pretends to be sick to stay home from school and eventually reveals E.T. to his brother and sister. E.T. shows them that he is from another planet and also demonstrates his ability to revive dead plants. The following day, Elliot and E.T. share a very specific telepathic connection as E.T. drinks beer and watches television. Elliot becomes intoxicated at school and frees a large group of frogs meant for dissection and then replicates a kiss from The Quiet Man, a film E.T. also watches on television back at home. Watching Sesame Street on TV, E.T. learns basic English and plans to call his home to return for him. Using a speak and spell and other household objects, E.T. makes a makeshift communicator. Meanwhile, Elliot and E.T. seem to be even more connected, and E.T.'s health begins to decline. The following day, which is Halloween, Elliot, his brother Michael, and their sister Gertie sneak E.T. out of the house in costume so that he can use the communicator in the forest. Elliot falls asleep with E.T. and wakes up to find him gone. When Michael goes looking for E.T., he finds him in a culvert near death. After returning him to the house, the family is contained by government agents and scientists. As they try to save E.T., the telekinetic connection between him and Elliot appears to break as Elliot gets better, but E.T. appears to die. After the scientists leave Elliot alone with E.T.'s corpse, E.T. reanimates and indicates that his people are returning for him. Elliot and Michael steal a van and flee the government, and after meeting up with Michael's friends on bikes, are saved by E.T., who levitates them away from danger. The spaceship returns, and E.T. shares a goodbye with Michael, Gertie, and Elliot. Taking the flowers from the house, E.T. and his ship return to space, leaving a rainbow in their wake as the film ends. So heartwarming. So is E.T. like an interstellar botanist or something? Yeah, I think we're supposed to understand that they're like some sort of botanists or whatever. Because we get that shot inside their spaceship very early in the film. I think it's like maybe the second scene. And they get all kinds of flora in there. Yeah, they look to be there. to, And they and at the very beginning, they take that little tree or whatever. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think they're collecting plant samples of some sort. Which is novel, right? We don't really should get aliens that are just out there doing scientific exploration quite in that light yeah well i think in general too when we get alien films the aliens are are hostile and these aliens don't appear to be hostile in any way yeah i mean all their powers seem to be 
healing based also telekinesis right so this is i think a very basic plot as you have expressed in plot yeah. synopsis not yeah. a whole lot happens oh and it, and it's surprising because it's a two-hour movie um and watching it, it again and i haven't seen it in a long time it's like remarkably simplistic and i actually think that's one of its strengths i think we'll talk about this later in the episode but i think that's one of its reasons it has staying power mm-hmm. but i was surprised to find there's not really a villain in this movie no not really i mean the government is sort of villainous but not really but they're also trying to save et yeah undoubtedly to go do further you know learning experiments on him or with him but the fact that they're they're trying to resuscitate him i think says something and you get the character's name is just keys in the imdb he's supposed to be seen as the bad guy that sort of trope of the authority figure who sees the kid and says oh kid you're looking for my lost dog which turns out to be the alien right but we never really get that he's kind of around and he's kind of positioned at least musically with as like a villain but when he gets there he's just like oh i'm just grown up elliot basically yeah he shows up to actually not be villainous at all which again is kind of an interesting twist in this in this movie that Mm -hmm. he's not really he's set up to be the bad guy but he's not the bad guy at the end of the day yeah so i think something that's interesting about this is that the film i mean is that it's really just comprised of moments it doesn't really feel like there's this plot that needs to be woven through the film length the duration Instead, it's just like, here are a bunch of memorable moments that we have from it that we take to the day, right? Which I think we'll talk about later as well. But Mm -hmm. I think one of the more, what's the term? Present or memorable moments is E.T.'s death, right? E.T.'s apparent death and Elliot's, I guess, revival of E.T.? Well, yeah, and I, that I'm not. This is an issue with the plot that that makes not very much sense to me. It seems to me that ET gets sick being on Earth. Whatever is that, maybe the atmosphere isn't good for him, or maybe it's because he's far away from his buddies. But whatever it is, he's not. He doesn't do so hot. And he and Elliot, for whatever reason, are telekinetically linked. They're telepathically linked, right? Uh, Again, I'm not quite sure why. Um, and then E.T. wanders off and dies for some reason and then comes back to life. Like, none of that really makes any sense other than to be kind of weird and strange mm-hmm. um, and to s- sort of serve the plot. Because it's never sort of ex- – I, I mean, I guess you can come up with some sort of explanation because he's an alien or this and that. But but it, the film doesn't set up any internal logic for it and it – doesn't really ask questions and so it's it's kind of strange i mean then because then i was thinking maybe et pretends to die maybe he does that all on purpose he does that pierce brosnan and james bond move where he lowers right. his heart rate so he's apparently dead right but that's crazy too i mean it does so i don't know so i could come up with a reason here on the spot and I, this has just occurred to me what if et's alien race is a communal race and they have to have those telepathic bonds with each other right. to maintain a healthy lifestyle. And so he becomes <laughs> friends lifestyle. with... He eats granola. Well, <laughs> he, so he tries to have the link with Elliot, thinking, right. oh, here's there's someone I can 
you know, bond with something I have a friendship with and it doesn't work. Right. And that maybe that's the issue is that he just needs to be with his people because that's that's how they live. Right. And so maybe then he comes back to life when the the ship gets close enough because they're coming back for him. Yeah. So all this is to say that I took this short, short scene between Elliot and the apparent corpse of E.T. to be our pivotal scene because it does align thematically really well and speaks to something more broad I want to speak about in regards to the film. But first, let's hear Elliot basically resurrect E.T. All right. So I know this is very short, but the reason I chose it is that it shares thematics with the Peter Pan story mm-hmm. that Mary reads Gertie, mm-hmm. and that if you just wish hard enough and believe him, and this in this case is the power of love, seemingly, that yeah. uh, causes E.T. to revive, which might also speak to my hastily concocted theory about the communal aspect of that alien mm-hmm. race. Yeah. And it plays again into the idea of the frog dissection, yeah. where you have Elliot suddenly thinking, oh, man, I really don't want to be a part of this. I need to set yeah. all these creatures free and creates this little kid revolution. That's really nice foreshadowing to what happens later with E.T., mm-hmm. although I think importantly, not with the sinister implications, right? They're, they're trying to save him. They're not dissecting the alien, right. which you think would be you know, a good counterpart to that, thematically speaking. So it seems like even the government's intentions are somewhat pure in this. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I'm sure the government's going to dissect him as soon as he's... Well, as soon as he's dead, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They, they, You hear some of the scientists over... Oh, you overhear some of the scientists saying that, uh, yeah. very, that very thing. But I think this is rooted back again in Elliot's need to free him slash... Yeah living creatures right it's something about Elliot's outpouring of love or recognition of animal rights or extraterrestrial rights I think that's the important thing is that (laughs) Elliot has this open mind about a situation that is already stagnant in place right the teacher who in monotone goes around talking about chloroforming these frogs and then dissecting them it's all taken for granted and all the kids are being educated to take that for granted as well until Elliot's like, no, this is yeah. weird and wrong. And it's also taken for granted that E.T. needs to be experimented on in, again, 
not so harmful a way, but still, you know, impinging upon his rights, I would suppose. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what this film is trying to say is that there's there's this need for love here in yeah. regards to all living things. And I think it I think that is is sort of um connected to a challenge with authority right that Mm -hmm. this film really asks us to challenge authority um and and kind of i mean parents end up functioning as one kind of authority or just adults in general um and and the film really does show us that the adults don't have it figured out it's the children that that you know are the ones that are able to make the links with the um with the aliens and da 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 so so i think you're right i think that there's something about like you know this sort of kind of cheesy love and connection touchy feely sort of thing um wrapped up in a sort of childlike resistance to authority and it's important to note that recognizing that authority figures are not omnipotent is a really key moment in the coming of age tale right yeah yeah it is our own narratives included, right? As we grow up and we realize our parents don't know everything, that's a key right. moment in your development. And I think we see that writ large here with Elliot and his brother and sister against government being the you know, authority, adult, parental figure, mm-hmm. and more small with his own mother, right? They're operating without adults in the situation. And it is always the kids, as you say, that are the prime movers in the film. And a lot of time we don't even see adults' faces, right? Yeah. Because it's all shot from the kids' angle. Right, exactly. The majority of the film you don't see anybody's face except for the children and the mom. Yeah, and and, and, and so I think that's really what this film is trying to do is, is grasp onto some kind of innocence that is mm-hmm. both heartwarming but also potentially illuminating. Yeah, it's and innocence definitely right is is a huge part of this film, um, because E. T. himself seems to be this or, or is I guess this innocent, you know, character who who doesn't know, he doesn't seem to know that beer is gonna get him shit faced. Yeah, um, you know, uh, and is and is not he's not violent. He is himself like kind of like a child. And one further thing I wanted to mention about my idea of what this film was prior to rewatching it and then as i'm rewatching it it's like wow i really did not remember that mike and gertie were a large part of this narrative mm-hmm. it's not just elliot and et really almost ever there are a few scenes where those two are just together but it's mostly again the friends the brother the sister yeah. it is again pointing to that communal aspect of getting something done or accomplishing something or pushing for what's right versus what's wrong it doesn't happen in isolation. Yeah, it's it's about the group. Yeah, ensemble. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's that's definitely um, part of what this movie is trying to say. Right? Is that it, it, just like how ET, you know, his group comes back for him? They seem to be linked in some way. The kids do best when they're all working together, as as well. Yeah, which is a nice parallel, which I think is mm-hmm. an important virtue to instill in children. Mm-hmm. And well, I don't think necessarily the world turned around because of E.T., we could see that as a positive thing. Yeah, definitely. So, Ethan, I think it's about time we turn to our three questions. I think so, too. Before that, though, let's talk about Anchor. Sure. So on to the three questions. First question, what do we owe to this film? Well, I think that you can't talk about this film without talking about Stranger Things mm-hmm. and, and Stephen King. Um, because 
it's it, having just rewatched a lot of Stranger Things uh, in the last week or two. Um, this film, I mean, Stranger Things might as well have just cut it apart and pasted it all back together, you know, with different people and in different order. It, right. It's it's so it draws so much from that. I think that that new movie, It, right, which is a Stephen King adaptation, draws mm-hmm. a lot. You know, it's much darker. Um, but it draws so much from this. And I think just sort of Stephen King kid, you know, with stories with kids in general, really share a lot of uh, DNA with this movie. And it and it's pretty um, hard to ignore. Yeah, on the Stephen King front, there was a time during the film, during my watching of it, that I thought, you know, Stephen King could have wrote this, except for the fact that nothing really bad happens. No one dies. No one's murdered gruesomely. And I thought, well... You know, if, if he had an editor and they were like, said, okay, make a kid's book, this is what a Stephen <laughs> King kid's book would look like, right? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that, like, th- this is this is Stephen King edited down to be, you know, PG, um, to, to be something palatable for the whole family, right? Because it, it has all of the, all of the sort of hallmarks of a, a Stephen King kind of narrative, right? It's kind of spooky. There's an unknown there's deus ex machina sort of stuff precocious children exactly precocious children special children you know that share some sort of special bond um yeah yeah the i agree with government that. lab you know that's there to come after them and of course with stranger things i was floored at how much stranger things just mm-hmm. takes whole cloth from yes. this film it's i mean so much and in fact to the point where you know i was talking with olivia about it about how this after watching stranger things et seems like et seems like the kind of the the pale ripoff because it while it does all these things and did all these things first right um it's just not nearly as nuanced i think as and and also because of the format difference right it's not television it's it's a two-hour film but it, it really does seem to kind of pale in comparison to Stranger Things, which is super derivative, right? Yeah. One of the first scenes is a bunch of kids playing D&D. I know, right? I was like, no fucking way. They're really playing Dungeons & Dragons. So, yeah, it it's it's pretty straightforwardly stolen. Yeah. One of our main characters is named Mike. Yes. <laughs> One of the kids in the bicycle posse at the end dressed exactly like the character Dustin in Stranger Things. Yes. It's like... E.T. is basically L. Yes. I mean, to the point where they even have E.T. in a silly wig and dress. I mean, yeah. yeah. They have similar powers. There's the whole language learning thing. Taking a foreign person, whether it's extraterrestrial or just from a very sheltered upbringing and teaching them rudiments of culture and language it's all it's all there like you said they just took mm-hmm. it cut it up and repasted it in a different way yeah and i and i think maybe did it better but we also have like 30 years of time in between for almost 40 years jesus there's also a strong connection to signs yeah mm-hmm. you get the alien in the cornfield and then some imdb trivia popped up during my filming or during my viewing of the film that said some of the producers who worked on this also worked on signs later. Signs, yeah. And you could definitely see similarities. And I think an earlier draft or before E.T. was set down as E.T., they were kind of working on ideas. 
they were thinking about a film in which a family has to barricade themselves inside against an alien invasion, which is the plot of Signs. This is the plot of Signs, yeah. And uh, yeah, from what I understand, the, this film was in development for a long time and had, and was meant to maybe be a horror film for a while or at least more of a thriller than uh, the sort of feel good that it that it becomes. So yeah, I think you're right. Like Signs feels like the alternate version of et right the the darker version and to put a kind of final note on it i think the reason et is so ever present in our culture either filtered through other media or just simply re-represented through parody or satire is because it has that very basic structure which we talked about and that translates well to other things and so i think Mm -hmm. we do see it a lot more than other films not because this is a particularly stellar film because it's so easily restamped. Yeah, because it is. It's it's a lot of sort of concepts, right, that we see. Yeah, that that are that are sort of repeated. Well, Ethan, why don't we move to our second question? And mm-hmm. does this film hold up? You know, I I think in a lot of ways it does. I think that you know I was really surprised by the special effects, how well they held up um, for me. And this is a film that is in a lot of ways all about the special effects. That kids acting holds up pretty well. Um, and because it's got such a simple, straightforward plot um, and structure, yeah, I mean, I think that it holds up. It Now, when you compare it to something like Stranger Things um, in particular, I think that it it ends up looking uh, pretty simplistic uh, and, and not very nuanced. But that's, a, that's also kind of okay. Yeah, it's funny because I have the same points listed down here, but I'm kind of taking opposite takes on them. Mm-hmm. I think some of the special effects, really just the superimposed images, yeah. I think those look pretty bad. I think the plot being simple can be a detriment to a viewing of it. Yeah. But you know, remembering that this is really a kids' film first and foremost, I think you know you have to put yourself in that mindset, and you also think it's 1982. People are not seeing this kind of scale of stuff happening regularly in the theater. Yeah. And so it would be kind of mind-blowing to see all this at that time. Exactly. I think that the the special effects in general, probably now that they feel a little sort of old hat and silly to us, now I think probably were pretty amazing almost 40 years ago in a way that's really been dwarfed by scale and and all that sort of thing here. Um, So I think that it has kind of a quaintness to it that, that feels nice. That I kind of mm-hmm. like. I don't know. The movie's kind. I mean, at the end of the day, the movie's kind of boring, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't. Th- I don't think you're wrong. <laughs> but of course, I don't think. I think if it were the '80s, we would not feel this way, right? It, it right. feels kind of boring because one, it's been redone in you know in so many ways a million times in other films and television, and we have you know something like Stranger Things that is so derivative right up against this you know especially if if you watched the new season that just came out so it it is kind of hard to watch this and be like this is kind of boring this is kind of slow this has all been done but but you know thinking about it in another way you know in its context or in perhaps the context of like a kid watching this movie i think it holds up pretty well and it's certainly not as as boring as you know other films i've seen um sure for this podcast so (laughs) but it is i think again pointing to that simplicity of plot that maybe makes it sometimes more boring for our modern attention span Mm -hmm. for most of the film they're not fighting against anything 
really yeah. at all. There's no opposition. It's alien gets lost, return alien to other aliens. Mm-hmm. It's the and it's the the magicalness of seeing that the alien, right? Yeah, and it is really just this coming of age tale. I think one of the preliminary titles for ET was a boy's life. Yeah, and I think that really points to the idea that this is not a typical dramatic structure in that way i mean you get a very compressed version of it at the very end but it's not necessarily meant to be enthralling plot wise and in 1982 it would have been more enthralling Mm -hmm. visually speaking yeah i think and that would make up for a lot of the the places where the plot lacks right uh but times have changed well let's turn to our third and final question do we care about this film uh, you know, I think we kind of have to. I, I think that it, you know, in in just enjoying something like Stranger Things, you don't have that without this. And I think that Stranger Things, especially the very first season, it is is really kind of great and, and really kind of very interesting, um, not just as something that's easily consumed. Um, and I think that, you know, E.T. does kind of function as a modern-day fairy tale, uh you know, with aliens and science instead of, you know, uh, fairies and wizards or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that, yeah, I think we do care about it. I, I think that it, you know, isn't the best made film and not the most interesting film, but it's important. Yeah, I have a very similar thing to put down here is that if you care about pop culture and the last 40 years, you really have to care about E.T. because. <laughs> yeah. It sets the pace in a lot of ways for things that we're seeing now today. Mm-hmm. And I think that largely is because people who were children in 1982 watching this and having that sort of magical moment there mm-hmm. and having that enthrallment, which we sort of lack as older and more contemporary audiences, they're grown up now and they're the ones at the wheel of pop culture, you know, Stranger Things and a lot of other things going on, right? So I think that has in a lot of ways made what we're seeing now what it is Mm -hmm. and i know we don't do this very often but i will say that just because there is the you know another very big steven spielberg film on that well there are several but i you know i i think that it is kind of strange that this is quite so high on the list and something like jaws is much lower because in my opinion i think that jaws is the the stronger film of the two and probably the more important film of the two um but well, we don't really do we don't really do this, so I should stop. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not that like we have a rule against it necessarily, but I think it's interesting thinking about this list as we get closer and closer to the top. We have so many films behind us that we start ruminating on. Well, yeah. why is this up here when you know something else didn't make it? Yeah, and I think my explanation is these are people voting on the top yeah. 100. I we don't have empirical right. standards for it, and so. I think we're not demographic that voted on this, and so I think we see things slightly differently. Yeah. It is, yeah, it's subjective, and and it do, it does depend on the group of people, right? And the time. I mean, they compiled this list like eleven years ago. Yeah, uh, from something that was compiled, you know, ten years before that. So, um, yeah. But if it were up to me, I would swap this and Jaws. If we're going to strictly keep, you know, Spielberg films and where they are on the list, I think that it's kind of it's kind of silly, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think it's true that that way lies madness. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What we can say about the list, though, is that next week, no, next time, 
we have <laughs> number 23, The Grapes of Wrath. Yes, The Grapes of Wrath. But until then, I've been Matt Wiesel. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. Mm, yeah, spoilers. Mm. I also really liked when she said, I don't like his feet. There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight. And that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.